3 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter. So you can't, you can't miss it. You can't get it wrong. And we are working our way through this one chapter, our book of 3 John, written to a close friend of John's, Gaius, who was a leader in, uh, in a particular church. We're not sure which one. But we went through the verse, three verses last week. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. The um, central theme of the message in this letter has to do with hospitality towards those involved in traveling ministries, but the, uh, the, the big prevailing theme of truth is also very much here. And in fact, the title of this message is Fellow Workers for the Truth. So I'm going to read, you can read along with me, verses 4 through 8, 3 John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for His name's sake taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study these verses today, that you would give us new and deeper insights to this major theme in all of John's writings, which is the theme of truth. But Lord, we also have here in this passage the idea of being hospitable and supportive of those who step out in faith to be involved in a traveling ministry, which is very challenging. So, Lord, we ask you to speak to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Pretty strong statement here by John. I have no greater joy. Nothing brings him greater joy, says John, the beloved, the apostle, the elder, as he identifies himself at the beginning of this book. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk or are walking, that's the tense we have here, are walking, continuing to walk in the truth. Quite possibly, John had personally led Gaius to Christ, but we see there's a plural here, the children, so it indicates that, uh, not surprisingly, there were many others that had been brought to Jesus by John. Even as Paul referred to Timothy as his, his son in the faith, no doubt John viewed those believers that he had led to Christ, and I'm sure there were a great multitude, as his children, his spiritual children. And so he's writing here to Gaius, but he's saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, plural, all those that I've had the blessed opportunity to lead to Christ, are continuing to walk in the truth. We talked last week about this uh, previous verse, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. We talked about how the uh, prosperity teachers have used and abused this verse. But what John is saying here in verse 4 tells us a lot about where his priorities were. He doesn't say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in perfect health. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are rolling in the dough, baby. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying that his greatest joy is to know that they're walking in the truth. Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. That's going to get us where we need to go. That's going to keep us on the right path. No greater joy. So contrary to the false doctrine, I believe it's a false doctrine, of the faith teachers... John's greatest joy came not from being materially prosperous and enjoying perfect health, but from knowing that his offspring were prospering spiritually, walking in the truth. Romans 14, 17, Paul lays it out pretty simply here. The kingdom of God. And that's, that's what we signed up for, is it not? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king, but it's not of this world. And my kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so when we accept Christ, yes, we're accepting Christ so that we might receive forgiveness of our sins and receive that precious gift of eternal life. 
but we're also signing up to become citizens of the kingdom of God, yes? We have, in a sense, renounced our citizenship in this world, just like someone may move here from another country or move from here to another country, and then typically, although things are getting kind of weird out there these days, typically when you pronounce, announce your allegiance to a country that you're not originally from, you have to renounce the previous citizenship, right? In order to uh, dual citizenship does happen sometimes, but it's pretty rare, and it's usually a result of... Now, my, my cousin Steve, my Uncle Fred's son, they moved to Australia many, many years ago. Uh, some came back of uh, his family. Some elected to stay. Steve married an Australian lady. And when they had children, those children had the opportunity up until the age of, I believe it was 18, to choose... U.S. citizenship or Australian citizenship. There are times when you can have dual, but it's not the norm. Normally, when you want to be a citizen of one country that you're not originally from, you have to renounce your previous citizenship. So you might say that as believers, we've renounced our citizenship in this world, in this kingdom, to become citizens of the kingdom of God. My point in all this is we read Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God, writes Paul, is not eating and drinking. It's not material. It's not material things. And so to be flush with, with material things is not necessarily an indicator that someone's a citizen of the kingdom of God, although there are some that will teach you that. That was the belief in Jesus' day. That's why the apostles, the future apostles, the disciples, were shocked when Jesus told them, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they said, oy vey, who then can be saved? Because the prevailing belief, even in Jesus' day, was that the more prosperous you were, the more God loved you. And that's the same teaching going around today in certain circles. And Jesus refuted it. He said, no, 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 guys. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us not even to worry about that stuff. God knows your needs. He'll take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And yet, how many times do our prayers uh, revolve around material things? Money, food, clothing, housing, and so all the things God promised to take care of. And see, that's the enemy's way of getting our focus off that which is the most important, which is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The kingdom of God is all about righteousness and peace and Joy in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. It is a concern I have for others and for myself that oftentimes I don't see us as believers walking in the fullness of joy that God has for us. Let's be honest. And yet that's God wants us. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. Again, I say rejoice. But we let all the things of this world get us down, drag us down, distract us, sidetrack us. And if we can't manifest that joy to those around us, maybe that's why we don't see more people coming to Christ. And you know what? I've kind of observed and this ties right in with what we've been talking about here with material things. Some of the most joyful believers I've ever met are the ones who were the poorest. They have nothing else to hang on to, to lean on. All they have is God. All they have is Jesus. And those are some of the most joyful believers. You see some of the kids in these uh, Operation Christmas Child videos with Franklin Graham. They're giving out the boxes and stuff. Stuff to us is practically junk. I mean, you know, just... And they're just so joyful. 
You see the videos of big groups of kids or adults both worshiping in places like India and Africa and different places where they have nothing. And they're so joyful, they're so enthusiastic. All the things of this world tend to steal and rob us of our joy. The thief comes with to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Folks, we need to work on this. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You're not going to prove the love of God to anybody by taking them down to the first cafeteria and taking them through for thirds, fourths, and fifths. Let's just pig out for Jesus. I'll show you the love of God. Pass those mashed potatoes. Give me another slice of that prime rib. Now, you're not going to lead anybody to Jesus by showing them your new Cadillac or your new... If you do, it'll be the wrong Jesus. And guess what? That's happening with a lot of people. They're being led to the wrong Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the gospel. If we really want to lead people to the real Jesus, we need to be manifesting that joy, that righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I could just camp out on this. It's so big. So big. But we'll move on to verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. I'm going to read from the NIV here. I just got to be, be honest. I like it better. Listen. Dear friend, he's writing to Gaius, his dear friend, beloved in the New King James. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. And it's easy to do nice things for people that we like, that we love, that we know, right? Those nearest and dearest to us, those are the ones who are usually most in our hearts and minds and we want to bless. But John is commending Gaius because he is doing this for people that he didn't even know. And I've experienced this in many, as many opportunities I've had to travel through the years, especially in the early years with the traveling music ministry on the road for seven years, always meeting fellow believers when we go somewhere to do a concert or something, and uh, there was an instant camaraderie or fellowship between us, an instant bond of love in Christ. In the NIV, it says, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. One of the most important indicators, and this is a big theme of John's, walking in the truth. One of the most important indicators that we're walking in the truth is how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that could be rather convicting in some cases. Galatians 6.10, I think I may have even quoted this last time, but let's read this again. Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. You ever had one of those situations where an opportunity arose and you kind of just missed it? And then afterwards you go, oh man, I should have done something there. You ever had that experience? That's God's brings an opportunity. We need to tune in on those and be ready so that when those opportunities arise, you never know where, when, how, who. But as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. So it's not just to believers. Obviously, we want to show the love of Christ to non-believers. But notice this, especially to those who are of the household of faith, to the believers. That's our first priority. Because if we can't treat our own well, how can we ever hope to reach out to the lost? Again, they will view us as hypocrites if they see the believers mistreating one another, abusing one another, not loving one another. Then they just see everything that we have to say as being fake and phony. Because let's be honest, whether it's within our own families or within the church, there's a tendency for those outside, we want to look our best, right? We want people to think we're pretty cool. So we go out of our way to be really nice and courteous and so forth. Then we go home and kick the dog, throw the cat out the door and yell at the kids, right? And sadly, in all honesty, that's who we really are, right? But then when people have an opportunity to maybe catch a glimpse of that, they go, wow, I thought that guy was somebody else, but I guess not. And it happens within the church as well when they happen to get a peek behind the curtain and they see how Christians treat each other. 
That's why Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Matthew 25, 40. The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. The king is God. The king is Jesus. He watches how we treat each other. And we can be all worshipful and prayerful and praise the Lord and say all the right things, but he's watching how we treat one another. Matthew 25, 45. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these. Now, does God need anything? Nope. What do you give the God who has everything? It's that time of year, Christmas, right? What's that old commercial? What do you give to the man who has everything? Well, what do you give to the God who has everything? You give him your love. You give him your praise, right? But there's nothing that God really needs. He's completely sufficient within himself. But what he desires, the way that we serve God, folks, check this out. It's by serving one another. That's how you serve God. Because God doesn't need anything. But he wants us to love him and he wants us to love one another. So that's how we show our love for God. By loving one another, serving one another. You are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers. So they're, they're brothers, they're fellow believers, even though they are strangers to you. And one of the most common complaints you hear from people visiting a church, not necessarily our church sometimes, although we have a very loving congregation here, and I've had many compliments from people saying, wow, everybody was so nice to me, so loving. Every once in a while you get a, you know, a sourpuss. And sometimes sour pusses don't get greeted very well because they give off a sour puss vibe. It takes two to tango, you know what I mean? People walk in with a sour look just waiting to be rejected. Come on, reject me. I know you're going to. Everybody's probably going to avoid you like the plague. You know what I'm talking about? If you walk in with a smile on your face, look for a hand to shake, all of a sudden, wow, things begin to click. Hello. That's not to say that there aren't people come in broken, wounded, hurting, and they really need people to reach out to them. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. Even though they're strangers to you. Now, so since these brothers were strangers to Gaius, they were obviously not members of his local congregation. Yet Gaius treated them with the same love and respect with which he treated those near and dear to himself. And again, as I already shared, I experienced that many times over during my seven years in traveling music ministry, not just in America, but all over the world. We went to Sweden. It was so cool. In the summer of 72, the Jesus people, Southern California, got together a group of 200 young people to go to Scandinavia to witness, to do outreach to Norway and Sweden. And um, although a lot of the younger people in Sweden were taking English in school, there was, there was somewhat of an ability to, to uh, communicate, but there was still a big language barrier. And yet, because of the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, there was, a, there was a camaraderie and a fellowship and a love there that transcended language. Cultural difference, language differences, and so forth. And yet, those folks were faithful in extending hospitality, love, support to us. And so these traveling teachers, preachers, evangelists were dependent on men like Gaius for food and shelter. Hebrews 13.2, it says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Right? We know that angels do appear in the form of men at times. And uh, according to Hebrews, you might have entertained an angel and didn't even know it. The Greek agalos, meaning messenger, Latin, angelus, Italian, angelo, or angelo. Oh, that little angelo, he's such an angel. Whether they're human or angelic, see the word means messenger, so they could be an angelic messenger, a human messenger. Whether they're human or angelic, God's messengers deserve the hospitality of the brethren. And we've had some folks in our church who have extended great hospitality to some of our visiting ministries, and we're very appreciative of that. 
believe the Wagners were the last ones to host um, the group from Canada all above me. And it's always a mutual blessing. During those many years I was on the road, some of my closest friends were actually people in Iowa and Missouri and New Jersey, all over the country, who have borne witness of your love before the church. Verse 6, so when those who had been recipients of Gaius' hospitality and his church, when they went on to visit John's church, which as we mentioned last week was probably the church of Ephesus, they brought testimony to the next church of Gaius' loving treatment of them. They, were, they testified before that congregation. So the testimony continued on to the next group of believers of how well they'd been treated by the previous group. So now John's telling Gaius, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. So this would be to help them on their journey with food, money, arrangements for companions, means of travel, and so forth. These were all elements that would go into them supporting these traveling ministers. So in other words, what John is telling Gaius, or Gaius, and we find this so often in the New Testament, many of the words of encouragement from Peter, Paul, and John, James, so forth, have to do with keep doing what you're doing. Paul talks about running the race, finishing the race, fighting the good fight of the faith. We can't rest on our laurels, so to speak, and just sit back and feel good because we did something good for someone here, but we need to keep, it, keep on keeping on. Keep doing what you've been doing. You're doing good, bro. John indicates that these traveling ministers were worthy of Gaius' support. You do well if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. And again, I would say that on many occasions our church has been very supportive of these various ones that have come our way, and I'm very appreciative of that. Now, but unfortunately, it seems like far too often there's a pitfall here, that those who emerge in the local church as, quote, do-gooders, exercising hospitality, caring, sharing, there's a tendency, this is something you have to watch out for, there's a tendency to burn out. And this is the enemy's strategy to undermine the good things that we do out of love for God. Do you think the devil's happy when we do good things for God? We're not doing them to earn our salvation. We're doing them out of love for God because he has so graciously and mercifully saved us, right? And so we want to, as I mentioned earlier, the way we serve God, the way we bless God is by serving and blessing others. And the enemy's not happy about that. So his strategy is to undermine the good things that we do out of love for God. And one of the main ways he does that is by messing with our minds, creating situations that can lead to burnout. There's a couple of things that could cause burnout. One, if we're not doing the right things for the right reasons. And I would, I would equate that with walking in the truth. You can be doing the right thing, but you could be doing it for the wrong reason, and that will lead to burnout. Important to remember that. If you're doing it to impress others, to win brownie points with man or God, then it can lead to burnout. If you've got your eyes on men and not on God, and you don't feel like you're getting the recognition you deserve, which shouldn't be why you're doing it in the first place, that can lead to burnout. Another reason is that other members of the body aren't stepping up and sharing the load as they should, and so those who are doing it have a tendency to burn out. So that means we all need to step up and share the load together and be sensitive to those who are working really hard, try to encourage them, try to help them, try to take some of the burden off of them. 1 Corinthians 10.31, it's vitally important that whatever we do for God, it really needs to be for God. Sometimes people say, I'm doing this for God, but they're really not. Vitally important. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink. We talked about the fact that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but Paul takes it down to the very most base level. Even in your eating and drinking, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that guy that wants you to take you through the buffet line for the fifth time probably isn't doing that for the glory of God, Right? Even in eating and drinking, whatever you do, all for the glory of God. Are you doing it for the glory of God or your own glory? 
If you're doing it for your own glory, eventually you will burn out. Because that praise from men, recognition from men, adoration from men is something that you and I can't handle. Why do you think so many famous people, talented people, the Elvis Presleys, the Michael Jacksons, and on and on it goes, I'm just using the entertainment industry, there are other, many other walks of life where people aspire to and achieve very high levels of success, which leads to worship, right? There's a lot of idol worship in this world, right? And more often than not, these people crash and burn because there's only one entity in this universe that is built for worship, that can handle worship, and that is God. When men are worshipped, it destroys them. We can't handle it. We were not created to be worshipped. We were created to worship. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed. So we have eating and drinking. We have words and deeds. Our speech, our actions. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. There's probably a lot of things that we've been doing <laughs> that we shouldn't be doing because we can't, couldn't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You couldn't tell that guy off that just cut you off in traffic in the name of the Lord Jesus, could you? You blankety blank, doggone, in Jesus' name. Doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work. It's kind of like that what would Jesus do thing that was so popular a few years ago. But you could always do, also do, what would Jesus say? In fact, it's interesting now that I'm, I'm reminding myself of this. Recently, I started doing that with myself. I'll say something and then I'll tell myself, maybe, I guess it's the Holy Spirit, really. Because myself wouldn't tell myself this. It has to be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell me Jesus wouldn't say that. It's kind of cool, kind of convicting. It's helpful. Don't you want God to tell you when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing? The problem is the more we ignore Him, the less we hear that voice, and the more we tend to do things we shouldn't be doing and say things we shouldn't be saying. <laughs> Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And I'll do that. I'll say, oh yeah, you're right. Thank you, Lord. Jesus would not say that. Thank you for reminding me. And I'm sure my wife's sitting back there thinking, I wish he would tell him that a lot more. <laughs> a lot more often. I guess that's a good prayer to pray. Lord, tell him that a lot more, please. Finally, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it heartily, enthusiastically, as to the Lord and not to men. Because granted, sometimes men will heap praise upon you, which isn't good for you. And sometimes they don't acknowledge it at all, which also isn't good for you. We all need a little encouragement, don't we? I appreciate it when people will come up after service and tell me, that was a great message. And I don't take it as like praise or worship or adoration. I just take it as encouragement. It's good. If nobody says it, then you kind of go home wondering, did I lay a stink bomb, you know? And the enemy will use that on you too. So it's nice to have a little encouragement. But the thing is, if you're doing it for the Lord, it's not going to matter. Right? If you're doing it for the Lord, it doesn't matter what people may think or say or do. And that's a much better way to live, by the way. The apostles did not worry about what people said or thought or did. They were hauled before the Sanhedrin, told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said... No, they didn't really say that, but they did say, we must obey God rather than men. Their focus was on God, not men, because men are fickle. Ask any NFL quarterback. One minute you're a hero, the next minute you're a dog, right? Men are fickle. Unless you're perfect all the time, they, they're not going to keep praising you. They'll praise you when they see you as being as close to perfect as a human can be, but the minute you fall short, you are dog breath. And dog breath is not nice. At least my dog's is, and I don't know about yours. I guess I should get him Dinovite. 
Get that stinky dog away from me. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Because the Lord knows your heart. If you're doing the right thing for the right reason, He will be pleased. If you're not, He'll show you. But men are fickle. You can't do it for men. Verse 7, because they went forth for His namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Again, I'm going to look at the NIV here. It was for the sake, and here's why. I love this. It was for the sake of the name, big N. I love that title for Jesus. The name. He's the name above all names. You know that, right? The only name given under heaven by which man must be saved. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It was for the sake of the name that they went out. I love it. Receiving no help from the pagans, it says in the NIV. For the sake of the name. John is confirming the sincerity and validity of the ministry of these uh, traveling missionaries. They were all about Jesus. Whenever you spend time with someone and the entire conversation revolves around them, that's pretty much a dead giveaway. They were doing it for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, the name above all names, Yeshua HaMashiach. This is how we can tell if someone is legit. Are they preaching Jesus or are they promoting their own agenda? There's a popular, well-known Christian musician whose name shall not be spoken that I've known for many, many years. And uh, consequently, on more than one occasion, we've had that person or persons. Might be one, might be more. I'm not going to tell you. I'm probably going to have to tell you. Not the name. But sometime back, this person came again, and we were back stage, so to speak, hanging out, talking before this person was scheduled to sing, perform. And most of the conversation revolved about his collection of Rolex watches. And then this person went out, and for all the large sum of money we were giving him, played for about 20 minutes and walked off. And yet most people in the Christian world think of this person as just a very highly respected, godly Christian musician. But I saw a side that told me something else. And that person's not the only one. There are others like that out there, whether they be preachers, teachers, musicians, what have you. And if you figured it out, don't come and tell me because I won't confirm it. Or will I? (laughs) This is how you can tell if somebody's legit. Are they preaching Jesus or are they promoting their own agenda? Are they all about the Benjamins or are they passionate about getting God's message out, trusting Him to provide for their needs? And again, this is how you can tell when you're in the midst of a spiritual revival or not. When I started out in contemporary Christian music in 1970-71, just barely out of high school there, there were these fantastic music groups popping up all over Southern California. Many of them had been secular musicians beforehand. Barry McGuire was pretty big in his day. New Christie Minstrels, Eve of Destruction, he got saved, totally forsook all that secular stuff. There were others. Chuck Gerard. How many of you remember Chuck when he was here a few years ago? He, had, he was in the group Love Song, probably the most famous of all contemporary Christian groups from back in the day at least. And he, uh, he had hit records on the radio with various groups. And all these folks realized that that pursuit of fame and wealth and all that was a fruitless pursuit and they forsook it all. And all these musicians soloists, groups, and so forth, began to go out and travel all across America and around the world preaching the gospel, and the vast majority of them, all they asked for was a love offering. If you can put us up for the night, feed us a meal or two, maybe take an offering so we can buy gas to get to the next place. It wasn't an industry back then, like it is now, where you have Christian music artists knocking down twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a night 
And again, that's fine. I mean, entertainers in the secular world probably make a lot more money than that. But don't call yourself a minister of the gospel if you're going to charge $25,000 to get up and sing. That's my opinion. You may not agree with me. And I know many of you have probably gone to some of these big arena concerts where these people perform. And it's not my place to judge their hearts. But all I'm telling you is what I see in the scriptures is that God never intended the ministry to be an industry whether you're a preacher, teacher, musician, or what have you. I don't mean to be offensive. I'm just giving you my side of the issue. And what I witnessed firsthand, where there were really talented people, gifted people, who could give a flip about money and material things and just wanted to go out and preach the gospel and trust God to provide for them. And that was a time of real spiritual revival. When the majority of your popular ministries are flush with cash, I don't think you're in a revival. Revivals don't revolve around money. They revolve around people and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I better just get off of that hobby horse. If someone meets this criteria, and that's the groups that we have that come through, like two or more in different ones, uh, Russ Miller, how many remember Russ, the creation guy from Flagstaff? Dr. Rick Oliver, former evolutionary biologist. In fact, we had that group a couple years ago. Most of you missed them because they came on a Thursday night. A fantastic group called Adams Road. They're all former Mormons. And none of them ever asked for a, a set fee. They just say, we want to come and minister. If you could take an offering, that would be great. And I think that's how it ought to be personally. If it's a ministry, if it's not, don't call it a ministry. Call it an entertainment career. In fact, with Adams Road, do how many of you remember, uh, heard about the slaughter of the Mormons in Mexico? When I was putting together this message, I remembered Adams Road, and I kind of wanted to go back and refresh my memory. I looked up their website. And the girl that was singing with them, Lila LeBaron, I thought, wait a minute, this girl came up from Mexico, and that name sounds awfully familiar, and as I began to research it, she is a member of that family that was executed in Mexico. Only God got her out of there, got her saved, now she's singing for Jesus, but I saw in one of her postings that some of those kids that were killed down there were her cousins. That LeBaron family, that's one of the two main families of that Mormon compound down there in uh, Chihuahua and Sonora, Mexico. Quite interesting. But if someone meets this criteria and they come to share with us and minister to us, then we're obligated to minister back to them. Two or more, Russ Miller, Rick Oliver, Adams Road. We've had a lot of others through the years too. The late, great um, Chuck Missler, Jacob Prash, different ones that have come and taught. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 10. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Good point. These folks are going to war. You have people back at headquarters, right? Military bases, doing all the logistics and the you know, administrative stuff. And then you have people who are going out to the front lines, like my son Adam, who's here today and fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. our former assistant pastor. He and his family are here today, Adam, Catherine, the two boys. So I encourage you to grab them afterwards and give them a hug. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, no. You sign up, you don't, you don't get a big paycheck. But you do get a paycheck and you also get all your equipment, right? How many pounds? 60 pounds you used to carry around, Adam? Something like that? Big pack with all this stuff and your weapon and all that and I can't even imagine over that heat in the Middle East. Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Nobody. You're funded by those who send you. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? 
For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. And so, in other words, as these folks step out in faith to go out and do what God's called them to do, there is a hope there that the body of Christ will back them, support them, get behind them. 1 Corinthians 9.14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so, unfortunately, because of those who do abuse it, those who do, Paul said some view godliness as a means to financial gain, and he is saying that in the negative. That's bad. That's wrong. And sadly, because some have so severely misused it and abused it, it puts a bad taste in the mouth of believers to the point that sometimes they are reluctant to support those who are legitimately preaching the gospel, teaching the word, and deserves the support, whether it be pastors in the local church or people out on the road traveling doing ministry. You see how the enemy does that? He uses these abusers to discourage the body of Christ from doing what the body of Christ is supposed to do, and that's to support legitimate ministries. And there are many legitimate ministries out there beyond the local church. Operation Christmas Child is one of them, Franklin Graham and those ministries. But the thing about it is, home base should come first. There's a greater level of accountability when you send out missionaries from your own church or like in cases with two or more people we've had relationship with for many, many years. We know them. We trust them. They know us. Those are good ways to do what God's called us to do with a maximum level of accountability and recognition that those resources are being used properly. So many times people send money out there to somebody off the TV or the radio. They don't know them from, pardon me, Adam. (laughs) And you have no idea what they're doing with it. And John goes on here to say that these men were taking nothing from the Gentiles, receiving no help from the pagans. So these traveling teachers, missionaries, declined to receive help from non-believers so that no one could accuse them of selling the gospel or only being in it for the money. And so they would look only to believers for support. The sad part is sometimes pagans are more generous than Christians. I hate to say it. But they're trying to build up good karma, you know what I mean? So you'll find someone like a Bill Gates or what have you, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos or somebody like that, and they're referred to as a philanthropist because they give large amounts of money to certain groups or organizations, usually groups like Planned Parenthood, (laughs) right? Groups that we wouldn't support. But they're trying to build up good karma, you know? I like good caramel, personally. Each of us should strive to change that sad fact that oftentimes non-believers are viewed as being more generous than Christians. Part of that, I think, is because we know that our good works do not save us, and therefore sometimes we don't do the good works we ought to do. You follow me on that? Philippians 4.12 through 19. Paul says, I know how to be abased, to have nothing, basically. And I know how to abound. Paul says, I can roll with the punches. I know how to live with little or nothing. I know how to live with a lot. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. What Paul's telling us here is that his circumstances don't dictate his joy. I can do all things. This is my life verse. I've shared it with you before. Philippians 4.13. This is God gave me this verse years ago as my life verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's either true or it's not. I believe it's true. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving. In other words, none of the other churches supported Paul in his ministry, but you only, the Philippians. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So there's Paul in another church serving, ministering, and he's getting support from the different church in Philippi. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul said, the important part to me is not that you're giving to me, but that is to your account. You're laying up treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Indeed, I have all and abound. 
I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God, this is another one they love to abuse, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The words they focus on are supply, all, and riches. There's a big word right in the middle. What is that word? Need. There's a big gap between what we want and what we need, is there not? Supply all your need. What do you need? Food, clothing, shelter, basic fundamentals of life. And Paul is telling these Philippians because they have so generously and sacrificially given to him and supported him, don't worry, guys. God's going to take care of you. He's going to supply. I know my God, Paul says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Christ's riches and glory are not a matter of eating and drinking but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Again, when are we Christians going to stop taking all these spiritual principles in the Bible and downgrading them to the material? See, God wants us to lift us up to His level. We keep trying to bring Him down to ours. That's not right. That's just not right. There's an old expression, oh, that man... That guy, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. He's got his head in the clouds. There's another side to that coin. You can be so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good. Get it? Look up, your redemption draweth nigh. Keep your eyes to the skies. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Philippians, not if, maybe, when, why, or how, God will bless you and provide for you because you've sacrificially supported me. Verse 8, final verse. We therefore ought to receive such as these traveling teachers, ministers, musicians, what have you. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We ought to receive such, receive the message and ministry for such as these faithful teachers and preachers of the truth with hospitality, love, and support. This kind of ministry can be very lonely and difficult. You know that? Especially, again, if you're one of these faith ministries, you're not flying everywhere on a jumbo jet. You're driving in a van or a motorhome, pulling a trailer. You've seen the groups come and go from our church, right? And you're on the road 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And you don't get proper rest, and you don't get proper food sometimes. And I remember when we first started out, we went to a little church in uh, Tucson, Arizona, Grace Chapel. It's one of those little Jesus movement churches, lots of hippies and stuff. Little tiny church, it was so small, some people had to stand outside and listen through the windows. Kind of reminds me of the book of Acts. But it was warm weather, I think it was the summertime, so it wasn't a problem. But uh, we had driven over from uh, L.A., you know, about eight, nine-hour drive, in those days, maybe a little faster now perhaps, but with all the traffic, maybe not. Anyway, sound system sticking out of the trunk of a small Volvo, one of the old Volvo bug Volvos. And they took an offering for us, and uh, I think it was 50 bucks. Gave us just enough money to get back to California. And praise God, we got from one place to the next. We therefore ought to receive such support them, encourage them, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Not everybody's called to leave home, family, friends, and jobs to preach the gospel. Some are called to be church planters. Adam's father-in-law, Randy Lucero, was with us for 15 years, he and Kelly. Uh, they went to Greer, South Carolina, 14 and a half years ago, or 13 and a half, to plant a church in Greer, Calvary Chapel of Greer, South Carolina. They're doing very well now very proud of them. Church planters, missionaries, Chris and Maria spent 10 years in Honduras, traveling teachers, musicians. And by the way, guess who were the first ones to do this? The apostles themselves. They started out by doing three years with Jesus on the road, leaving their wives and kids at home, leaving their jobs. They were all fishermen. Most of them are tax collectors. They all quit their jobs and went to follow Jesus. It's a pretty special calling. Not everyone is called to do that. Not everyone can do that. 
Luke 18, 28, Peter said, see, he's talking to Jesus. We've left all and followed you, Lord. And he's kind of saying, so what are we going to get? And Jesus tells him, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what you're going to get because you've humbled yourself and made this sacrifice. You're going to be exalted. Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. John's point is this. Not all are called to go out and do this type of a ministry, but all believers are called to stand for the truth and to support those whose calling it is to make this great sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And in this way, by supporting those in the local church, the staff members here, those that come and minister to us, those that we have connection with, there's relationship, there's accountability, we may become fellow workers for the truth because that's what we're all about here at Calvary Chapel East. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for all the great people you've brought to us through the years that have been representatives of your truth, Lord, faithful, loyal, trusted servants of the gospel of Christ. We thank you for the many opportunities we've had to be supportive of them through the years. And Lord, we thank you that by your hand, by your working in us and through us, you have established us here at Calvary Chapel East as fellow workers for the truth. Lord, we, we, we proudly, knowingly, willingly claim that title, fellow workers for the truth. Lord, you are the truth. You're the way, the truth, and the life. Your word is truth. And we thank you for making that truth known to us. And we ask you to help us to continue to stand. Lord, no matter what others may do or say, that you would help us to continue to be a stronghold here at Calvary Chapel East for your truth. Not our truth, your truth. And Father, as we close now, we thank you for a great time of worship and communion. And we pray that in these closing moments as we sing our final song and the, the prayer team comes, that all those who need prayer, whatever it might be for, whether it's to receive Christ, whether it's to rededicate their life to Christ, whether it's to make a fresh commitment to walk in the truth, to walk in obedience to your word no matter what the cost. Maybe some need prayer for, for health issues, for healing. Whatever it might be, Lord, we know that you are here. Nothing is too difficult for you. With God, all things are possible. And Lord, as we read this morning, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, we ask you to bless the ministry time now as we sing, worship you, and as people come forward for prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.